it, it's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Broadcasting from coast to coast. City to city, coast to coast. It's time for the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. If it's happening in sports, it's being talked about right here. And here's your host, Ryan Hickey. Good Monday morning. Welcome in to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. As you just heard, you are listening to the Ryan Hickey Show with you right here for the next two hours as we go until 11 a.m. Eastern. We appreciate you starting your week with us, starting your Monday morning with us right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. There's a little feel of autumn in the air, a little chill in the air for the first time this fall, which means it's football weather. We have a ton of football to break down for you and get into here over the next two hours. Kyle Triple of Iowa losing, shouldn't be a surprise. Coach O, in a somewhat surprise, will not return in 2022. Two great candidates in my mind that will be perfect for the job next year. We'll get into that, but we will break it down. Browns continue to get banged up and injured. The Ravens, to me, showed why they're more dangerous this year than they were in 2019. If you remember when they went 14-2 and and Lamar Jackson won the MVP award. I'll explain that. We have a lot to get into here. NFL quick hits, as always, that we do every single Monday after the NFL season. A ton to get into, so let's do it. Why wait? Let's jump right into it. As a reminder, we are coming to you live from the Big Italy Pizzeria Studios. Whether it's great pizza, hot heroes, and phenomenal dinners. Make sure you check out BigItalyPizza.com to find a location near you. So I want to start off today's Monday show by talking about two teams that I think showed why they are very, very similar on Sunday. Super Bowl contenders with one fatal fall that still has me concerned, and I still think will hold them back in the end. The Cardinals and the Cowboys. Two, I think, very impressive wins for two very different reasons. On Sunday, the Cardinals taking down the Browns on the road in Cleveland, and on the road, the Cowboys taking down the Patriots in overtime. Both impressed. I think both, for different reasons, like I said, showed why they're Super Bowl contenders on Sunday, but I think also kind of revealed the one fatal flaw that I think will take them down, that I think will hold them back and has me concerned. But we'll start with the positive here. It's a Monday. We don't want to start off negative. We, we want to kind of give you that, that positive energy to get your day going, get your week going. So let's start off with the positive here for both the Cowboys and the Cardinals. We'll start with Dallas. Because for me, I don't know about you, I was slow to get on the Dallas Cowboys bandwagon. Preseason, I picked the Washington football team to win the division. I thought even though, again, for whatever felt like the 10th year in a row, Dallas is the more talented team in the NFC East compared to the other three teams. But similarly from what we saw in 2019, in 2020, this Cowboys team, despite having more talent on paper, would fall short on the field. So I was not a, a believer. I was not buying in on Dallas as even a playoff team coming into the season. And for me, now the reason why I'm putting them, forget just as a playoff team, forget con- kind of conceding the NFC East and letting go of my prediction of, of the Washington football team winning that division and handing over to the Cowboys, forget that. I'm believing the Cowboys are Super Bowl contenders, legitimately. Because of how they won the game yesterday. Not that they beat the Patriots, but how they won. Because both offensively and defensively, 
They made the clutch plays. They made the winning plays that we have not seen from a Dallas team in years. In years. Because when you look at this game going back and forth, the missed opportunities early from the Cowboys were two different times near the goal line or in the end zone. They turned the ball over. Despite moving up and down the field pretty easily, couldn't convert into points, couldn't convert into touchdowns, left the Patriots hanging around. Next thing you know, you know, we're watching that game yesterday. Despite the Cowboys dominating, Patriots score a rushing touchdown in the fourth quarter. All of a sudden, next thing you know, New England's up 21-20. I don't know about you. I thought, here we go again for Dallas. Another game where they're the more talented team on paper, a game which they should win, and instead now will kind of piss away for all different reasons. But to their credit, they absolutely stepped up on both the offensive end and the defensive end to get the win. Fourth and one, as we know, Michael McCarthy ops kicked the field goal. I thought personally it was the right move. Take the points, have a chance to take the lead instead of going for it on fourth and one. He misses the field goal. But credit to Dallas's defense. They could have caved. That could have been the game right there. Instead, Trayvon Diggs does what this guy does, which is unbelievable. Another interception. A pick in literally every single game this year. All six games. Takes it back to the house. And also, next to know, Dallas goes from possibly losing this game to, oh my God, the defense of all teams, of all units, made a play. Now they, as they know, go ahead. And that was very short-lived because one play later is all it took for... Mac Jones to connect with Kendrick Bourne, 75-yard touchdown. And then I go back to the thought, here we go again. Classic Cowboys, they make a play to give you a shot, to have you believe. And literally, one play later, pretty bad and awful route by the safety. Next thing you know, Kendrick Bourne's running 75 yards, torching uh, Trayvon Diggs, the guy who just made the pick six. And now the Patriots go back up. So I don't know about you, I was thinking, here we go again. Cowboys are gonna cowboy. But to Dak's credit, down by three, third and 25. They get 24 yards, set themselves up for the eventual game time field goal, which they hit. Overtime, defense gets a stop as the as the Patriots get the ball first. And then as we know, Dak Prescott makes the game-winning 35-yard touchdown pass to CD Lamb to win the game. So this was a game. It's not that they beat the Patriots, because the Patriots aren't very good this year. They're two and four. This is a rebuilding year. They're, look, they're showing in positive signs that they are competing. But this is not, you know, the Cowboys going in, you know, in 2017 and 2018 and taking down the big bad Patriots with Belichick and Brady. So it's not that they won the game. But for me, making the clutch plays offensively, Dak leading the way, making the clutch plays defensively, getting the Patriots off the field, getting that pick six to go ahead and bail out your offense. It's the Cowboys making clutch plays offensively and defensively that has me sold that this is a Super Bowl contender. And I will say this here quickly for Dallas before we kind of switch over really quickly to the Cardinals. I think it's fair to say, and it's time to say, I was dead wrong about Dak Prescott. I was a guy that was on the fence about paying him, didn't think that he'd be able ever to rise to the level of a franchise elite quarterback. And my goodness, this guy continues to do it again. 445 yards yesterday, three touchdowns. And now, when you look at Passer rating in NFL history, when the game is tied in fourth quarter or overtime, Dak Prescott is now or ha- now has the highest passer rating in that scenario in NFL history. Higher than Tom Brady, higher than Drew Brees, Peyton Manning, Joe Montana, Dan Marino, any quarterback you want to look at in NFL history. 
Dak Prescott has beat them all, and now he has the highest passer rating of any quarterback in the fourth quarter or overtime when the game is tied. He has played some of his best football clutch. He's not a compiler like I thought he was at times last year. He is making the winning plays for this team. Offensively doing it, defensively, Michael Parsons and Trayvon uh, Diggs have really been balls of life, have injected some real life and competence into this defense that was awful last year, and they are doing it on all sides of the ball. So for me, how the Cowboys won yesterday, not that they beat the Patriots on the road, but making the big-time clutch plays offensively and defensively is the reason why I am buying in for the Cowboys as Super Bowl contenders. And for the Cardinals... A lot of you thought this way, and again, I was late on the Cardinals bandwagon as well. They were 5-0 playing like the best team in the NFL, so it's not a revelation. It's not exactly a crazy thought here to say, hey, the Cardinals are Super Bowl contenders. But to go into Cleveland like they did yesterday and win a game handily without their head coach in Cliff Kingsbury, without their quarterback coach, without Chandler Jones, their best player on defense, all on the COVID list and all unable to participate in the game yesterday, to still have their way with the Browns like they did offensively and defensively is super, super impressive. And for the Cardinals, the encouraging part is that they can beat you in so many different ways. This is not just a team that does one thing well, and it's not just on the shoulders of Kyler Murray, or it's not just reliant on a run game or great receivers. They can do so and win games in so many different ways. And a large part of that is because Kyler Murray has been tremendous in year number three. You look now, including his stats yesterday, 14 touchdowns to the first six weeks, just four picks. He's making great reads. He's not putting the ball in harm's way. He's been super efficient. He came into yesterday's game with the highest completion percentage of any quarterback in the NFL. It's 75%. And again, they're throwing the ball a ton. It's not, you know, he's throwing the ball 10, 15 times a game and just making a few plays. He is winning games with his arm and doing so in an insanely efficient way. But it's not just the pass game. It's not just Kyler Murray. Because this team, the Cardinals, are both top 10 in passing yards on the season and rushing yards on the season. And on the flip side, defensively, again, without their best player in Chandler Jones yesterday, they're top five in sacks in the NFL, and they're sixth in points per game allowed in 19. They are deep offensively and defensively. So again, they have given no doubt, really, Throughout these first six games, they're Super Bowl contenders. They've done so against good teams. The Browns yesterday, they did against the Rams a few weeks ago. They beat the 49ers, who I still think are talented on paper, despite the fact that that was the game where Jimmy G got hurt. But this is a Cardinals team. They smoked the Titans week one. That is playing really balanced and great football offensively and defensively and doing so against some of the best teams in the NFL up to this point. So not that the Cardinals yesterday at least showed everyone, hey, this is a legit Super Bowl team. There's a lot of people believing. But for me, I was interested to see how the Cardinals would come into this game, and I was shocked, to be honest, about how well they played with some of the guys that they were missing. With that, that, with that said, though, so both the Cardinals and Cowboys, absolutely Super Bowl contenders. But the reason why I want to lump both of these teams into the same conversation to start the show here is because, for me, they have the same fatal flaw. They have the same issue that I think will come back to bite them later on in the season that has me concerned, and that's coaching. Cliff Kingsbury with the Cardinals, Mike McCarthy with the Cowboys. Neither of those two guys, to me, I believe in when it comes to playoff time, when it comes to executing and scheming to get the Cowboys and the Cardinals as far as they should go with what their talent has on the field. Because you look at Cliff Kingsbury with the Cardinals here for a second. He is the king, the king 
of good starts and awful finishes. I know I kind of hit on this point a lot, but I think it's fair to keep on riding home because, look, the, Cow- uh, the Cardinals are 6-0. They are tremendous. But for the Cardinals, it's not about what you do in the first half. It's how you play in the second half. Because Cliff Kingsbury's MO, whether it's lack of adjustments, whether it's getting complacent, whatever it is, he has had a track record of falling off a cliff, no pun intended, in the second half of seasons. Last year, 6-3. and three, One of the best offenses in all the NFL. They finished the year 2-5, and five, averaging just 20.5 points per game. You could say Kyler Murray's injury impacted it. Sure, I get it. He had a shoulder injury. Absolutely had an impact. Also, at the same time, they played poorly down the stretch. I think that's coaching. 2019, they finished the year 2-7. and seven. 2018, he's at Texas Tech. 5-2 and two start, 0-5 finish. Every single year he's been at Texas Tech or the Cardinals... He has finished below 500. He finished 2-6 and six on the year in 2017. 2-6 on the year in 2016. 2-4, 2-15, 1-5 in 2013. All these years, mind you. 2018, 2017, 2016, 2015, 2013. All of them had a winning record in the first half of the season. All those years at Texas Tech, he finished below 500 or at 500 with a poor start. With an awful finish. He did so again last year. So I am concerned this year that, yeah, Kyler Murray's playing one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. The running game is playing, you know, is going really well. The receiving game is going really well. Defensively, they're playing some great football. I just hope Cliff Kingsbury gets out of the way. And I will say, maybe I'm overreacting. Maybe I'm looking into too much here or not giving the coaching staff enough credit. But you even look yesterday. No Cliff Kingsbury out with COVID. The quarterback coach, also out with COVID. So you have the offense coordinator and head coach at Cliff Kingsbury, a guy who does the same jobs, out. The quarterback coach, who you think would be the easiest guy to kind of slide in there and replace Cliff Kingsbury, out. So you had Spencer Whipple. Spencer Whipple. In Kyler's ear, kind of calling the plays and, you know, being the voice in his ear, trying to get the plays out there and, and operating the offense. You had him. Working with Kyler, uh, with, uh, with Kyler Murray all game, they scored 37 points. Total 352 yards of total offense in the game yesterday. Against the Browns defense, that's good. I know they got torched yes, uh, last week by the Chargers. But this is still a, a defense to me that is pretty good. And yet, they had the road with them. So, it didn't really seem like they were affected that much by Cliff Kingsbury not being there. This, to me, is all about Cliff going forward. If he can't adjust, if he has another late-season swoon like he has literally every single year of his career coaching-wise, whether Texas Tech or or the Cardinals, this team is not going far. This team is not reaching the level it should because the head coach isn't there to finish the job. And on the flip side, the Cowboys, same thing. Like, there are times you see where I feel like Dallas is winning in spite of Mike McCarthy. His clock management... We'll say at best is questionable, or put it nicely. At worst is frankly clueless. Yesterday was the prime example. Fourth and one, late in the fourth quarter, Mike McCarthy takes a timeout with, I believe, it was about 21 seconds left, 24 seconds left in the game. Now, he kicked the field goal. You want to call a timeout and go for it? Fine. Give yourself a chance to convert and give yourself time to run a few more plays, try to score a touchdown and win the game, or get yourself closer in field goal range. Instead... After the Cowboys went from 3rd and 25 to 4th and 1, Mike McCarthy calls a timeout right away, then jogs the field goal unit out. Greg Zillian hits a kick, 
Now, it worked out because the Patriots took a knee and went to overtime. But you give an offense 20 extra seconds to work with. You don't know what happens. A big kicker turn. All of a sudden, next to know, that 20 seconds is massive. Look at last week with the Vikings and the Lions. Vikings didn't need all that time to go quickly down the field for a field goal to win the game. It's really one or two pass plays, and you're in field goal range now. So Mike McCarthy, his, his clock management to me is very, very poor and questionable. His challenges, even, are super weird and not very smart. So when you look at Mike McCarthy, you look at the rest of the teams in the NFC that they're playing, right? The Rams, the Buccaneers, the Packers. Like, you look at Mike McCarthy, there's no coaching advantage for the Cowboys when it comes to the playoffs. When it comes to out-scheming and give your team an advantage, Mike McCarthy's not the guy to do so. So, look, you look offensively for the Cowboys. This is one of the best offenses in all of the NFL. Defensively, they have, pl- they have played and come further this year than I have ever expected, to be honest. Credit to Dan Quinn. Credit to some of the young players that they drafted over the years. This defense is playing well. This offense is playing at an elite level. It's up to Mike McCarthy basically just to get out of the way. I'm a little nervous if he can do that. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Cardinals, Cowboys. I think both showed different reasons why they are Super Bowl contenders yesterday. I think also both showed the reason why there's a fatal flaw there that has you nervous, and it's coaching. I'm curious your thoughts, whether it's Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network, Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. Are you a believer in the Cowboys? Are you a believer in the Cardinals? Can their head coaches get it done? Or is that the biggest thing holding them back? Again, Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network, Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. We'll get your thoughts when we do return. Talking about a guy not holding a team back, Lamar Jackson does it again. I'll tell you why this Ravens team in 2021 is more dangerous, more impressive than they were in 2019 when Lamar won the MVP and were 14-2. We'll explain that when the Rocky Show returns right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back in to the Ryan Hickey Show with you right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. We're talking and starting with the Cowboys and Cardinals. Two Super Bowl contenders that I think showed for different reasons why they are yesterday, but also revealed the one fatal flaw they have, head coaching. Cliff Kingsbury has really kind of struggled in the second half of every single year he's been a head coach, whether it's at Texas Tech, whether it's at uh, whether it's with the Cardinals. And Mike McCarthy just leaves a lot to be desired. His clock management skills are not great. Challenges are, are awful. He's not a guy that you really truly feel come playoff time gives you an advantage over a guy like Sean McVay, over a guy like Matt LaFleur, over Bruce Arians. That has me concerned for sure. But I will tip my hat one last time to Dallas here because they, to me, impressed me a ton of not only beating the Cowboys, uh, beating the the Patriots, because again, that, that's a team where, where Dallas is talent-wise, where the Patriots are talent-wise, even though it's in New England, a tough place to win. That's a, a game Dallas should win, let's say, seven or eight times out of ten. You know, the better team, they're playing a lot better football right now. That's a win where the Cowboys, if they're truly Super Bowl contenders, if they're truly NFC East division winners, win. And they did. 
But to me, how they won is more impressive with the clutch throws in offense, with the big plays on defense late. And here's another stat for you from Clarence Hill Jr. that I think really kind of emphasizes even more how impressive that win and how, perform- how impressive Dak Prescott's performance was yesterday. Throwing with 445 yards, three touchdowns. Corner Clance. Dak Prescott's 445 yards he passed for yesterday are the most ever, ever, against a Bill Belichick defense playing in New England. 445 yards allowed. The most ever allowed by a Bill Belichick defense at home. That's impressive. That's crazy. Just shows and highlights the truly incredible and spectacular year Dak Prescott and this offense is having. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Are you a believer in the Cowboys? Are you a believer in the Cardinals? Or is there a head coaching concerns enough to kind of have you not buy into either one? Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. If you want to tweet us, we'll get your tweets right on the air. So we're talking about Super Bowl contenders and some concerns for two of the best teams in the NFC. How about we go to the AFC? Because I think one team made a loud and true statement yesterday. And that is the Baltimore Ravens. Watching them just dismantle the Chargers the way they did. 34-6. to Defensively, they're flying all over the field. Offensively, running the ball with a ton of success. Lamar Jackson doing his thing. Coming out of that game and now looking back on the 5-1 and one start in which the Baltimore Ravens have won five games in a row. I feel confident saying the Baltimore Ravens to me in 2021 are a more dangerous team, are Super Bowl contenders, and more in a better position to win a Super Bowl, I should say, this year than they were two years ago. In 2019, when they went 14-2, and when Lamar Jackson won the MVP. I know it's a high bar to clear, right? The team won 12 games in a row to finish the year. They got the number one seed in the AFC. Lamar Jackson literally had the best year of his career, again, winning the MVP in a runaway fashion. But the reason why I'm believing in the Baltimore Ravens this year more than I was two years ago, the reason why I feel like they're more dangerous and closer to a Super Bowl this year than they were two years ago is because of Lamar Jackson. But it's not just because of Lamar. It's because of how he's playing this year. Because he has done, so far through six games, the one thing a lot of people didn't think Lamar could ever do. Win from the pocket. The last few weeks, he has consistently won games with his arm. Not with his legs, not with his playmaking ability, but with with his arm from the pocket, which makes this offense almost impossible to defend. That element wasn't there in 2019. It is there in 2021. Efri, that's why. That last missing piece for Lamar when it comes to truly making this offense unstoppable is finally there. I'm believing it. And that ability to win from the pocket, to beat you with his arm consistently, is the reason why I think, despite the injuries, despite even some of the players not being as good, maybe defensively, this year as they were in 2019, I think this Ravens team is closer to a Super Bowl this year than they were two years ago. Because even yesterday... Even in a game where, like I said, they dismantled the Chargers who were coming in arguably the hottest team in the NFL, maybe them and the Bills. Neck and neck so far in the AFC through five weeks um, in terms of being kings of the AFC. And you had the Chargers come into Baltimore and they were dismantled. But even in a game like that yesterday, where Lamar's stats weren't dazzling, where he wasn't exactly lighting up that Chargers secondary, 
I think his arm, just the threat of the pass and winning from the pocket was enough to kind of open up the run game here and have them dominate. Because Lamar just threw for 167 yards. He only threw for one touchdown. Had two picks. So again, the stats aren't eye-popping. They're not jumping out. But what did happen, I think what the, the Chargers had to respect, was the rushing attack. Or I should say, what they had to respect with his arm, which opened up the rushing attack. Because for the first time since week two, Ravens had a great uh, game on the ground. And I think that was in large part because the, uh, the Chargers were concerned and trying to stop the pass that opened up the run. Because they ran for 187 yards, the Ravens did yesterday. Ran for three touchdowns, and they did so again. And this is the same cast of characters that two years ago were one of the best teams in the NFL. Offensively couldn't be stopped. They ran for 187 yards yesterday with... Latavius Murray, with Devontae Freeman, with Le'Veon Bell. Obviously, Lamar was a part of that as well. But those are really the big three backs that had a lot of action and scored some touchdowns. Latavius Murray, Devontae Freeman, and Le'Veon Bell. Those three combined with Jackson combined for 187 yards and three touchdowns. But because of the names we're listing, right? That's not J.K. Dobbins. That's not Gus Edwards. Because of those injuries... You haven't really been able to rely on the run game a ton this year for your Baltimore. You weren't able to run the ball as easily and efficiently as you were last year, as you were two years ago. But to Lamar's credit, he has stepped up this season and has won games consistently with his arm from the pocket. Because again, up until yesterday, so weeks one through five, every single game, Lamar's passing yards increased. Every single game up until yesterday, his passing yards were increasing, his, his accuracy was getting better, and he was beating teams more and more consistently with his arm. But not only was the passing game successful, from weeks two to five, that four-game stretch, every single game, the rushing yards decreased. So they're running the ball less, they're running the ball less effectively. But with that said, the Ravens are still winning games because each and every week, Lamar Jackson is stepping up and winning games with his arm. So the pass... The passing game this year for the Ravens has become more frequent and more successful, which again, when you add that final missing piece to this Ravens offense, it makes them almost impossible to defend. As a Colts fan, I saw that firsthand. Last Monday night, a week ago, that Colts defense was absolutely shredded, and they had no answers for Lamar because he was on fire passing the ball. He had just six incompletions. He went 37 for 43 on Monday Night Football. 442 yards and four touchdowns. Not only is that stat line super impressive, but it also made NFL history with it. The first quarterback, the only quarterback in NFL history to throw for 400 or more yards, throw for four touchdowns, don't throw an interception, and have at least 50 yards rushing. There's no other quarterback in NFL history that has ever done that. And it's not just that stat that's impressive. He also has the highest completion percentage at 86% last week. Again, going 37 for 43, just six incompletions. That 86 completion percentage yesterday, or sorry, last Monday, was the highest ever, ever, for a quarterback with at least 40 pass attempts and 400 passing yards in a game. For all you know, the greatness of Patrick Holmes, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Drew Brees has been Mr. Fitch throughout his entire career, Aaron Rodgers. Think about that. No quarterback in NFL history has ever attempted 40 or more passes uh, thrown for 400 or more yards in one game and had a higher completion percentage than Lamar Jackson. 
His passing game right in front of us. The one area people have been clamoring for for Lamar to improve. He has done so so far this year. And maybe just me, maybe I missed it. But I feel like I have a good sense of what people are talking about and what the feel is for the general NFL fan. And I feel like it's not really being talked about a ton, which is why I wanted to bring it up now. Coming off a game that, well, yeah, sure, wasn't great for Lamar. But you look at the totality so far, six games. Basically, rough math here, a third of the way through the NFL season. He has been winning games for the Ravens with his arm. You look even this year, coming into the 2021 season. He had just one prior career game passing for 300 yards. This year, he already has two. And it might sound insignificant. It might not sound like a big deal or a big drop-off, but when you watch the Ravens and you kind of know how they run offensively, this is a big deal. They came into week number six this year. They came into yesterday with the sixth most rushing attempts. So top 10, right? That still shows they run the ball a ton. They're a run-first team. But the reason why, to me, that's significant is because you look at 2020, 2019, they led the NFL both years in rush attempts. They ran the ball a ton. They led the league the last two years in rush attempts. This year, they're sixth. And that kind of shows you the trust and belief now the Ravens' offense has in Lamar Jackson. Part of that's injuries, right? Again, when you, when you lose basically your top three running backs before the season even starts, you need depth quickly. And you're not going to be able to rely on guys like Latavius Murray, Le'Veon Bell, Devontae Freeman as much as you would J.K. Dobbins and Gus Edwards. But to Lamar's credit, he has stepped up, and he's done so in a sustainable and efficient way. Because we saw a week one against the Raiders, right, in the Monday night game. I was legitimately nervous. We talked about it here on that Thursday show about how Lamar is going to be used this year because he basically looked like a guy that was in high school. When you know he's the best athlete on the field, they put on a quarterback and they basically say, hey, make a play. Sometimes you throw the ball, sometimes you run the ball, but it's basically, here's the ball, go do something with it, figure it out. And the offense is all disjointed. It wasn't really coming together. It wasn't a lot of efficiency there from Lamar Jackson and this Ravens offense. But really, ever since that week two win over the Chiefs, which I thought they had no shot at winning hand up, I was wrong. The passing game has come along each and every week to where now Lamar, something he's worked on you know, throughout his entire career, but really worked on a ton this offseason, he is beating teams from the pocket. They are running less. Lamar is running less. And instead, making plays and relying on Lamar's arm, which again, is that missing piece, is that one thing the Ravens' offense was missing when it comes to playoff time. Because what's always been the narrative, right, when it comes to the playoffs? Defenses have been able to figure Lamar out. He's able to run. He's able to dance around and make a few dazzle plays with his arm in the regular season. But once now defenses, once defenses come to playoff time, once it comes to a playoff game, Lamar has really struggled. All three years, 2018, 2019, 2020. Even though he won a playoff game last year, it wasn't exactly pretty against the Titans. And we know the next game against the Bills was very ugly. But he has finally delivered the one area people have been clamoring for. I mean, he's blossoming right in front of our eyes. For me, going into this year, I thought the Ravens were a wild card team. A, a safely in the playoffs team. The Browns won the division, but I thought the Ravens would be there. Definitely, you know, that fifth seed, one of the best wild card teams in the AFC. Then, when the J.K. Dobbins injury happens, and the Gus Edwards injury happens, and Justice Hill is out for the year, next thing you know, Marcus Peters is out for the year, and guys are dropping like flies left and right on that team. I can't lie, I was nervous. Then you come out of week one, with playing how badly and kind of 
out of whack and out of sync that they did, I was legitimately nervous. I thought maybe this team could miss the playoffs. So we went from wild card team beginning of the year to, or before the season, to one and a half games in the year. I'm like, oh my God. The Ravens, now you lose that game to the Raiders. They go play a Chiefs team that's owned them the, the last three years. I was nervous about this Ravens team kind of spiraling out of control. To Lamar's credit, though, he has been the guy to put the team on his back and lead them, not with his legs, now with his playmaking ability, with his arm. So now when you look six weeks into the year, third into the year, three, the Ravens are AFC North favorites right now at 5-1, and one, and they are legitimate Super Bowl contenders. They're more dangerous again to me this year than they were Lamar's MVP year because he has that one thing he never had two years ago, beating teams from the pocket. Sitting back there, dissecting defenses, making reads, going through his progressions, and hitting the you know putting the ball accurately on his receiver. His stats should be even better than they were this year, or that they are this year, because a few drop passes. Marquise Howard Brown, a few drop touchdowns. Had another one yesterday that I think should have caught for a touchdown. So if his receivers were even bailing him out, we could even talk about Lamar's you know stats even more impressively than they are right now. This is a guy to me that, again, yesterday I get didn't have the best day throwing the ball. It was more about the run game, running for 107 yard, uh, 87 yards over the Chargers. I get it. But a third of the way through the year, I think we have to really start talking about Lamar Jackson, adding the final element to his game that, to me, makes the, the Ravens now legitimate Super Bowl contenders, makes them scarier than they were two years ago, a team that was the number one team in the AFC, a team that was 14-2, and two, with Lamar Jackson winning the MVP. Lamar Jackson this year, to me, is scarier and harder to defend than he was during his MVP year. And that's all because of how he's able to beat teams in the pocket with his arm. High completion percentage. Making the right reads. Throwing touchdowns left and right. Not relying on his legs to open up the pass game. or not bailing out of the pocket when the first read isn't there. He has truly developed his passing game to a level this year that is Super bowl Worthy. That's to me is why the Ravens are so dangerous this year at five and one. That's to me why I'm buying into the Ravens as legitimate Super Bowl contenders. I'm curious your thoughts here. Same places you want to comment: Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network, Twitter at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter. Check us out there or WWSRN underscore Radio. Live stream is on all three, whether it's Facebook or Twitter. Tweet us right on Facebook. Are you buying Lamar Jackson in terms of being a pocket passer? Are you buying into Lamar Jackson being a truly elite quarterback? And to the Ravens yesterday, are you buying into the Ravens as legitimate Super Bowl contenders? Are, in that, are they in that conversation with the Ravens? Or they are the Ravens. With the, uh, with the Bills. With the Chargers. Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network. Twitter, WWSRun underscore radio. At Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well as where you can chime in your thoughts we get those thoughts. And when we do return here on the Ryan Hickey Show, quick hits time in the NFL. We got to bounce around a few weeks, a week six notes, including something I'll say about Kirk Cousins I never thought I would say. And it's a good thing. We'll tell you that when the Ryan Hickey Show does return right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Hey, 
And welcome back in to the Ryan Hickey Show. 15 minutes from now, Coach O will not return in 2022. Two names I think are perfect to become the next head coach at LSU in 2022. But before we get to that, NFL Quick Hits, week number six action. To react to a few things, bounce around the league that we saw. First and foremost, let's start with the Minnesota Vikings. Let's start with Kirk Cousins. I'm about to say something that I honestly never thought in my life I would ever be saying. Kirk Cousins this year is a clutch quarterback. That's right. I can't believe it. I thought that was a lost cause. But to his credit, Kirk Cousins has been extremely clutch, has played some of the best football in the biggest moments for the Vikings this year all season long, consistently. Even in the losses, he has done... He has made drives, he's made plays and throws to get them in a position to win. So credit to him yesterday in a 34-28 overtime victory, which I really thought the Panthers at one point were going to have an incredible comeback and win this game. Kirk Cousins did so not once, but twice. Lead the Vikings on some big-time drives late in the game that to put them in position to win. When the Panthers made that incredible drive down the field, Sam Darnold make a big, uh, a few big fourth down throws. They get the two-point conversion. They get the touchdown. Next thing you know, it's 28-28. This game was dominated by the Vikings. 28-17 late in the fourth quarter. This game's over. But Panthers come back, and I honestly thought, okay, no way Kirk Cousins is going to lead them down here. This is going to be a great shot here for the Panthers. Get the ball back and win. Whether it's overtime, I'm just getting to overtime. But... After they tie the game up at 28, there's 42 seconds left. Credit to Kirk Cousins. He marched right down the field to give the Vikings a shot to win the game in regulation. Not counting the spike uh, near the end of the game to give themselves a chance for a field goal. Kirk Cousins went 4 for 4 on the final drive. Got them to the Panthers' 29-yard line. Again, with just 42 seconds left. To set up Greg Joseph for the for a game-winning kick. Missed it. Okay, overtime. This is the Panther shot here. Well, Vikings win the toss. They get the ball. And in overtime, Kirk Cousins leads a nine-play, 75-yard touchdown drive, including throwing the game winner to K.J. Osborne, 27 yards for the touchdown. I will give Kirk Cousins so much credit because, again, at this point in his career, you kind of, we know who Kirk Cousins is. A guy who lights up the stat sheet against some lesser teams. When it comes to playing big-town opponents, when it comes to needing a big drive in a big spot, he comes up small. He never gets the job done. But this year, again, yesterday, not one but two clutch drives to put his team in position to win the game late. Once they missed a field goal, the other time they scored a touchdown game over in overtime. And that's not just one instance. Look at last week. Right after the Lions get that late touchdown to go up and get the two-point conversion. Finally, you think the Lions are going to get their first one in the year and reward Dan Campbell for all the hard work. But with 37 seconds left, down by one, Kirk Cousins leads the Vikings down. Sets up a 54-yard game-winning field goal for Greg Joseph. He drills that. So last week, does the same thing. Puts him in position, short time in the fourth quarter. Gets him a field goal range quickly, big-time throws to win the game. Even going back to week, I believe it was week two, when the Vikings played the Cardinals, they lost that game on a Greg Joseph missed field goal at the gun. But to Kirk Cousins' credit, he got them in field goal range yet again. Nine-play, 58-yard drive against the Cardinals, which again, you did all you could do for your quarterback on the outside of getting the ball in the end zone. He got them in field goal range to set up for a game-winning field goal. It was missed. But even when they're losing, he has consistently, week in and week out, played some of his best football late in the fourth quarter to give the Vikings a shot to win. 
he deserves a ton of credit for that. I've been a big Kirk Cousins basher, I guess. I just never truly believed in him being a clutch big-time quarterback. That was a guy that, for all the nice stats he puts up, for all the, you know, the good games he has against the Lions and the Jets and the Giants, that was a guy that I truly did not think he could win a Super Bowl with. This year, he has flipped the narrative. He has been tremendous in the clutch, and I would give Kirk Cousins credit for that. Incredible game yesterday. Incredible finish for Kirk Cousins yesterday. Cousins is clutch. Who would have thought? Not me. Absolutely not me, but that's exactly what he's been this year. How about the Las Vegas Raiders? To me, this was, I'd make the argument, maybe the biggest surprise of week six was them being the Broncos. Not that the Broncos, I thought, were a better team. I thought they were pretty even. If anything, I'd give the Raiders an edge in terms of personnel. But to go on the road to Denver with all that happened this week in the organization, I honestly cannot believe they came out as sharp, as crisp, as clean as they did. And they really took it to the Broncos. They won 34-24, but really the score wasn't even that close. They dominated this game. And a lot of credit goes to Derek Carr for setting the tone. Throughout the week, once John Gruden and those truly despicable emails came out, once he did officially resign on Monday night, you had Derek Carr kind of leading the team in the front. Talk about how they got to put this behind him. Talk about how they got focused on the Broncos, and the best way to kind of get over this is by focusing on the task at hand. It was great words. I just didn't think it was realistic in a situation like this where you're so emotional. You have Carl Nassib, the first openly gay player in the team, needing a day or two, understandably, to process what his head coach was saying about the um, the gay community over the years. So there was just a lot emotionally that really kind of drained the Raiders this week that I thought no shot here. They could go into Denver, a team you know that you're playing just as desperate as you, that needs a win, right? Both of these teams start off 3-0. Both of these teams came into week 6, 3-2. One was desperate to kind of turn the tide. And I thought the Broncos would just be the more desperate team, the more focused team to get the job done. But Rich Passaccia got this team. The new interim head coach got this team ready to play. Derek Carr played tremendous. 341 yards, two touchdowns, no turnovers, pushing the ball down the field, dissecting a very deep secondary for the Broncos. You can make the argument as the best unit on this team. He played great. And so a lot of credit to the Raiders for after an emotionally draining week to come out more focused, to come out sharper. Very impressive. And they get a very impressive and also much-needed victory here to put a bow on a week from hell for that Las Vegas organization for sure. How about the Jaguars? Speaking of getting a much-needed win, my goodness gracious, it's happened. It has finally happened. Urban Meyer gets a win, this time in London. Hopefully he got on the team plane going home and didn't stay back in London, which never would never be a good thing for Urban, as we know, with his track record. But now you know, the Jaguars finally break a 20-game losing streak. They are 1-5 in five the season. But I want to kind of use this to talk about more about the Dolphins. Because now they're also 1-5. For me, the Dolphins have been the most disappointing team in the NFL this year. I really came in thought they, thinking this was going to be a playoff team. I picked them to be a playoff team. With how they played last year, with the roster the way it was, I truly thought, okay, they won, they won 10 and 6 last year, just missed the playoffs. I thought this was a roster that was growing, that was going to get better. I did not see the regression, and as strong of a regression has been this year coming. I think it's something that has to do with Jacoby Brissett playing for the injured Tua Tagovailoa, who got hurt week two and missed three games. But Tua was back yesterday, and it still didn't matter. There are a ton of holes right now on this team that are just getting exposed. The offense line is a big-time issue. That was the reason why Tua got hurt in the first place. 
as the Bills just teeing off on him through the first two drives of the game before he broke his rib or fractured his rib, I should say, back in week two. So whether it was him uh, under center, which Jacoby Brissett under center, neither quarterback has a real chance here to have a ton of time to throw the ball. The run game, because the O-line is so poor, is non-existent, can't establish a run at all. Defense has gotten exposed as a unit that when they're not getting turnovers, they really kind of struggle shutting teams down. They're a bend but don't break defense. But again, they rely a ton on turnovers that when they're not forcing them, when teams are holding on to the ball, it's tough for them to get a stop. So I just come out of this game again super disappointed that the Dolphins at 1-5. I thought we were going to be a playoff team this year, and instead now not only drop to 1-5, not only really have their season over, even with two are returning, lose to the hapless Jaguars. Congrats to Urban Meyer. This is absolutely a loss, though, that should never have been there for the Dolphins. I don't think Brian Flores is on the hot seat. I don't think he should be fired. This is definitely a wake-up call and I think a jarring kind of reality check that the Dolphins maybe weren't as good as we kind of thought they were last year. I learned that the hard way. And I think a lot of other NFL fans I believe in this team are as well. Speaking of concern, I think it's time to be concerned about the Cleveland Browns. They're 3-3 three and three in the year, second loss in a row. Look, all three losses are, are against good teams. Now you look, they lost to the Chiefs. They lost to the Chargers last week on the road, now lose to the Cardinals. I think the Chiefs are bounce back, so that's, to me, three teams that are legitimate Super Bowl contenders, three of the best teams in the NFL. But what's getting me concerned about the Browns is not how they're playing, but the injuries. Like, to me, this is still a Super Bowl contender when healthy. The issue, though, is that when healthy right now is a, is a word that we might never see again for Cleveland this year because they are getting banged up left and right. They came into this game without either of their starting tackles, Jack Conklin, Jedrick Wills, both out with injuries. No Nick Chubb, who was dealing with a calf injury heading into the game. So you're missing three of the most important pieces on the field when it comes to the Cleveland Browns offense, right? which is a run-first offense. Been very dominant. You had Kareem Hunt leave the game with a calf injury. We don't know the significance just yet, but he had to be carried off and carted off the field. Not great. And, you know, sometimes those calf injuries, we don't want to speculate. Sometimes those calf injuries, though, do lead to ACL in- uh, or Achilles injuries. Hopefully that won't be the case. But... As we know, not great for Kareem Hunt for a team that loves to run the ball and has been as great as he has this year. And yet Baker Mayfield hurt his left shoulder again. Ugly, ugly fall where he looked like he separated as soon as he kind of landed on it awkwardly. I, for one, cannot believe I think everyone was shocked that he was able to come back in the game and drive later. He didn't miss a play after that. was just impressed with shows how tough Baker is. But the concern now going forward is that that left shoulder injury, that already torn or partially torn labrum that he had in his left shoulder, that's not going to get better at all this year. That's going to be an issue all throughout the rest of the regular season. And that's going to be an issue where he's, you know, it's only going to get worse, not better. So you already have your tackles banged up. Now you have both running backs injured and you have your quarterback with the left shoulder injury that's sure it's not his throwing arm, but it's still, as we saw, kind of hampered him at different points this year with accuracy. That's now the Browns are starting to concern me because you know what? Their injury is starting to pile up. Their injury is starting to pile up. And if you're not healthy, you don't really have a shot. That's part of the NFL. You know, it's a war of attrition. Not every single year the, the team that wins the Super Bowl is the best. Sometimes it's all about health. We saw with the Chiefs last year. Now, look, the Buccaneers are a tremendous team, but we saw going to that Super Bowl, the Chiefs were without their two starting tackles. The offensive line was banged up. They didn't have a chance. That offense with Patrick Holmes and Terry Kill and, and Travis Kelsey didn't have a shot. It's a war retreat right now, and the Browns are one of those teams that unfortunately are just getting ravaged. So even though they're 3-3, three and three, 
it's not really the style of play that concerns me and how they're playing for the Browns. It's the injuries. These are some serious and legitimate injuries. And now, probably the worst timing of any to have a short week with a Thursday night game against the Broncos. That's brutal. But the injuries, though, do absolutely have me concerned about the Browns going forward. Concern. Let's laugh at the word concern. Because I don't know you, I could not believe what we were seeing on Twitter yesterday. There were people on Twitter that actually thought Patrick Mahomes was being figured out. They actually thought there was something bigger to this Chiefs offense that should, you know, maybe that this is the downfall of the Chiefs. Patrick Mahomes threw an awful pick at the end of the first half. I'm not excusing it. It was terrible. But the, the overreaction we saw on Twitter say that one pick was comical. And Patrick Holmes came out in the second half and reminded those idiots. Because that's what you are. If you tweeted yesterday about, oh my God, the NFL has figured out Patrick Holmes. Oh, he's not as good as we thought. This is not a straw man argument I'm making to tear down. Go type in Patrick Holmes on Twitter and see the tweets that are coming out in the first half. See the quote tweets that are coming off of the Patrick Holmes interception where he just fluttered the ball up and gave an interception to the Washington football team. Take a look at the tweets and the takes after that pick. It was ridiculous. And quickly, Patrick Holmes second half reminded those idiots that there's nothing to worry about. After a slow first half, which they're down 13-10 to the football team at halftime, against a very porous Washington football team defense up to this point, they slammed the door on the football team in the second half. They won 31-13. Patrick Holmes finished the game 397 yards, two touchdowns. Chiefs scored 21 points in the second half. Again, they came to life. I get that maybe this is not the same dominant Chiefs team that we saw, but this to me is very reminiscent of the Patriots dynasty and all the takes and all the slander we heard about Tom Brady throughout the years. This is finally the year Tom Brady's going to fall off the cliff. This is finally the year the Patriots dynasty is dead. It's over. One or two bad games is going to happen. These guys are human. I get everyone is desperate for new blood, right? You want the Chiefs desperately to come back down to earth. So maybe you're trying to will it by tweeting that the NFL has figured out Patrick Holmes. That maybe he's not as good as we thought. That maybe the Chiefs' mystique is done. But guess what? It took one half for Patrick Holmes to remind everyone he is still the best quarterback in the NFL and he is going nowhere. He's going nowhere. Bad games have happened. He played awful against the Bills last week for sure. No excuses. But if you think one bad game against the Bills and a few picks over, you know, having a turnover late in first two games is going to be the downfall of the Chiefs, you are sorely mistaken. It's going to take a lot to take down this Chiefs offense and truly have Patrick Holmes be, quote-unquote, figured out. You're going to need Andy Reid to retire. You're going to need Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill to be off the team. You're going to need an offensive line that's horrible. You're going to need Patrick Holmes to start developing bad habits. It doesn't take one game. And that second half, I think, truly reminded everyone that Patrick Holmes is fine. Let's take a deep breath and not overreact to a very small, small sample size and make declarations that the NFL has figured out Patrick Holmes because that's, frankly, just stupid. Absolutely stupid and idiotic. And I'm glad Patrick Holmes, even though I'm not a Chiefs fan, I'd like to see them come back down to earth. I'm a Colts fan. I want to see the AFC open again. I want to see my team have a shot to make the Super Bowl and not run into a buzzsaw that is Kansas City every year. With that said... Let's not start spreading rumors and start saying things that aren't true. Patrick Holmes is going nowhere fast. We all got to accept that. And finally here, I want to touch on the Sunday night game last night. Because I get the Steelers won the game. They won 23-20 in overtime. But I'll be honest here. 
you can say what you want about moral victories, and maybe they're not, you know, we shouldn't be parading them and have them be as important as they are. Seahawks, to me, got a moral victory yesterday. You got to come out of that game if you're Seattle feeling good about what you saw on Sunday night. Because Geno Smith, despite the fact they had a very shaky and unproductive first half, they're shut out. He led the offense to 20 second half points against a very good Pittsburgh defense. He got the Seahawks back in the game. He made a few throws. He got the running game going. And even down 20-17 late in the fourth quarter, he had a two-minute drive that got the Seahawks into field goal range, got the spike, got the field goal kick, and got them in overtime. Yes, I get he he had the fumble that exact ended up costing the game and put the you know gave the Steelers the ball right there in field goal range and ended up being um, the difference. But for me, when you don't have Russell Wilson, when you rely so heavily on Russell for the Seahawks to win games each and every week, you have to be at least optimistic. You know what? Geno played good enough for us to have a shot. We had a shot with Geno Smith, which I think is all you can ask for for the Seahawks now over these next few weeks. The goal and the target for Russell Wilson, as the reports were out last week, is that he wants to try, uh, try to return week 10 against the Packers. He's put on IR coming into this week, just missed at least three games, which keeps him right on schedule for returning week 10 against the Packers. There's two games left before the Seahawks have a bye and then play the Packers. They have the Saints at home. They have the Jaguars at home. There's a real shot with how Geno Smith played yesterday. The Seahawks win both of those games. That, to me, is why you got to feel good if you're a Seahawks fan coming out of last night. Geno Smith gave you a shot. He can keep this key, uh, He can keep this team competitive until Russell Wilson gets back. That's all you got to ask for. That's all you need. They're 2-4, and four, I get it. The record's not great. But you just want to have a shot. Still be in it. By the time Russell Wilson comes back, I think that's what Geno Smith will give you these next two weeks and what he showed last night in that eventual loss to the Steelers. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Plenty of, plenty of things to react to here. For NFL Quick Hits, Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network, Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. When we do return here for hour number two, Coach O is sort of out, right? He's, he's not returning in 2022, but he's not exactly fired now. He's finishing out this 2021 season and then agreeing to separate after that. It's a win-win for me for both LSU and Coach O. I'll explain why that is when the Ryan Hickey Show does return right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It is the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. As a reminder, the hour number two, the 10 o'clock Eastern hour, always sponsored by LC Designs. Charcuterie boards, well, they're perfect for all occasions, so make sure your guests are happily fed with some delicious and aesthetically pleasing charcuterie boards made by Lauren Clark. Check out lcdesignsnyc.com, lcdesignsnyc.com for more information. Big, big, big news in college football coming down the pike on Sunday. Just as really the 1 o'clock games kick off, we find out that Coach O, his future has been I don't say resolved, but his future has been now made certain. Ross Dellinger was the first reporter of Sports Illustrated that LSU and Coach O have come to a separation agreement, which is a first you hear in college football, really in sports, right? You think that's a divorce. This is really the closest thing to actual divorce we have seen in any major sport 
a separation agreement uh, between LSU and Coach O, where Coach O will finish out the 2021 season. And also, uh, he has agreed to not return in 2022. So, a, a amicable divorce, if you will, where he'll finish out the season. He will not be fired in, in season, but he will not return for the Tigers in 2022. For me, this is a win-win for both parties. It's a win for LSU. It's a win for Coach O. We'll start with Coach O first. Because, look, it was, it was kind of set in stone. He was coming back in 2022. Really, how last year went with 2020 with a lot of disappointing uh, results, right? Going 5-5, five and five, really starting off pretty poorly, getting run out of the building, having, de- having their defense be historically and statistically the worst, I should say, in LSU history. Then this year, starting off the season, losing to LSU after calling a fan in the LSU shirt. A, you know, he was wearing a sissy blue shirt. That went viral. It did not go well. The Coach O era since winning the national title, did not go well. And to be fair here, the national title is looking more and more like an aberration, like a perfect storm where, yeah, 2019 was incredible. But before that, eh, okay, it was okay. Maybe not as high for LSU standards as you would like, 10-3, and for, you know, New Year's Six Bowl champs, but not the national title contention that LSU fans want. Post that, he's just 9-8 and eight since the national title. But it's not just on the field for Coach O. Right, because the results have struggled. He hasn't really found a quarterback since Joe Burrow left. He hasn't really found an offense or a defense that has consistently played at the elite level that LSU is used to seeing every year. But it wasn't just on the field for Coach O. There's a lot of off-the-field issues, too. And as we know, in college football especially, and college basketball, the off-the-field issues can be brushed under the rug, can be overlooked, can be buried when teams are winning, when coaches are winning, when the program is flying high, when recruits are coming in. Whether it's academic issues, whether it's real life issues, off the field can be brushed aside, can be overlooked, can can you can kind of turn a blind eye to it, or try to kick the can down the road as far as possible. But as we know, all of a sudden when the wins aren't there, all of a sudden when some bad losses come, when some questionable coaching decisions happen, oh, all of a sudden out of nowhere those off the field issues pop up on our issue again. There's been a lot of off the field issues with domestic violence, with sexual assault, with academic issues under Coach O, that really now we're going to be on 10 to start. And Ross Ellinger did a great job uh, in an article he wrote for Sports Illustrated yesterday kind of detailing. It wasn't just those off-the-field issues, but there was a lot of friction between Coach O and, and, um, Coach o and, and some other, you know, whether it's athletic director, whether it's other um, directors in the athletic department, there was some friction there. So for me, kind of mutually agreeing to part ways is a win for Coach O because guess what? Things weren't going to go away. He's going to get fired. You save yourself the, the embarrassment of getting fired two years after winning a national title like Gene Chizik did at Auburn. He is Mike, he has, he is Mr. Louisiana. He's Mr. Kind of Cajun. So now at least he could still, I don't say have some pride, but still at least be able to come back to LSU and have it still be a positive. Because as we know, that LSU 2019 team is going to get celebrated a ton going forward. There's going to be a lot of reunions, a lot of different appearances throughout the years. You still want to have that be cordial with Coach O. You still want to have that bond there where you can go back and show your face at LSU and and go on the field at Tiger Stadium and receive cheers, not boos. So think of your coach, you kind of got to see the writing on the wall that this was not going to turn around and this was either going to end ugly or you kind of get out ahead of it and say, look, you don't have to call for my job anymore because they lost to Kentucky. Nice win against Florida, a win that I didn't think they were going to have, but you still play Ole Miss, you still play um, Alabama. This still could have gotten pretty ugly where Coach O every single week is treading on Twitter because fans want to fired. I think you, you kind of save yourself some of the embarrassment there. 
He's Mr. Cajun, and you know, he's always been LSU for life, so you kind of save yourself an embarrassing exit there. You still leave yourself cordial and still leave yourself welcome back. So I think for me, leaving amicably the way Coach O did, whether it's his choice or not, but at least to announce now, hey, I'm not coming back, but I'm going to finish out the year. Let's just finish this off strong. I think does allow Coach O to kind of still leave in the good graces of LSU fans and have his welcome be a good presence, not kind of get booed or not have him kind of vanished from the LSU community despite winning a national title and having one of the best college football teams of all time two years ago. But here's why for me, this is a big win for LSU. Massive win for LSU. You now, with, with this announcement early on in the year, still basically halfway to go uh, on the NFL, uh, in the college football season, you now get out ahead of the coaching search. You now get to make a splash where you're competing for with USC. I think, to, personally, LSU is a more attractive job than USC. I do. But now you get out ahead of it. You now get coaches thinking, oh, it's not just the USC that's the big-time job that's open. Now it's also LSU. Now it's also something to consider. And their athletic director, Scott Woodward here, I think is fascinating guy to watch during this hire because he has been a guy who has always gone big fish hunting. Whether he's at Washington, he's able to hire Chris Peterson away from Boise State, got into Washington. That was a big hire from there. He leaves Washington, he goes to Texas A&M. What was he able to do at A&M? Well, he was the AD that was able to sign Jimbo Fisher, able to get him to leave Florida State to come to A&M. Gave him that massive, massive deal. So he has gone, whether it's Washington, whether it's A&M, he has gotten the big fish on the market to come to his school. So now he's at LSU. So there are names out there, like Jimbo Fisher has been a guy whose name has been out there. And interestingly enough with Jimbo Fisher, Right, he just he signed that big contract or big that big contract first of all when he started at AM a few years ago. Then he signed an extension or a new contract earlier this year, just a few weeks ago. Interestingly enough, both of those contracts he signed at AM do not have a buyout. Right? Every college football team, it's not the NFL where you can't really just sign any head coach you want. You got to trade for him. Right, the, the Giants, for example, they just can't say, oh, we want Sean Payton, we're going to sign Sean Payton, or we want Bill Belichick, we want, we're going to sign Bill Belichick. you got to trade for them. In college football, you don't trade for a head coach, but the way that kind of works is instead of trading, you pay them off. It's called a buyout. But there's no buyout for Jimbo Fisher. This is a guy that all the money he's making, it costs him zero, and it costs LSU zero dollars to lure him away from A&M, which is fascinating. Jim Fisher's name's been out there. James Franklin's name has been out there. There's some big names already tossed out yesterday uh, that LSU will consider for the new head coaching job. For me, though, there's two names that I think are, I'll call them smaller names, that I think would be perfect for the LSU job, that I think would get them back on the right track and get LSU what they want. They want sustainable success. They won a national title. Right? They were fired up. They were so happy that they won the national title two years ago. But since then, it's been a what-have-you-done-from-lately sort of thing, right? 9-8, and eight, and now Coach O is going to be at the door at the end of the year. So just winning one national title doesn't exactly get you a statue built. It doesn't exactly buy you, let's say, 10 years worth of goodwill and the LSU fans' uh, graces. You need sustainable success to be a national title contender every year. Two names I think that can get you there on a yearly basis. Mel Tucker at Michigan State, Mark Stoops at Kentucky. Both now have shown at their stops, uh, at their respective schools, they can win with less talent. They can coach the hell out of the teams that they are and win games against teams that are more talented than them. So they can do that. If Mel Tucker can win at Michigan State, 
if Mark Stoops, and he's done some more consistently because he's been at Kentucky for a lot longer than Mel Tucker's been at Michigan State, but you have Mark Stoops at Kentucky consistently now winning eight, nine, ten games at Kentucky despite having a less, you know, a lot less talent. That to me, if you now can win with lesser talent, imagine what they'll do when they have one of the best rosters in college football that the way LSU recruits every single year. That to me is enough to keep LSU consistently at the top with Alabama, with Georgia every single year in the national title conversation. Those to me are the two names. Mel Tucker, Mark Stoops. Because look at Mel Tucker, right? He has really turned Michigan State around. That program was kind of in shambles. And Mark D'Antonio left. There were some issues off the field. The recruiting has really sagged off. Michigan State, and the timing of it too when he resigned, was pretty brutal, pretty tough for Mel Tucker to come in. Obviously, we know the pandemic made things tough. But they did beat Michigan last year. And now this year, he's been able to turn this Michigan State program around to where they're, number, they're 7-0, I should say, uh, in college football. They're a top-10 team. And part of the reason why he's been able to turn Michigan State around so quickly is he has really mastered the transfer portal well. He's brought guys like Kenneth Walker over and has turned them into the top leading rusher in all of college football. He has been able to bring explosiveness to the Michigan State offense that has been missing for years. Even when Michigan State was at their best. When they went to the college role play from 2015, this is not an explosive offense. This is not an offense that really left you kind of uh, in awe at how well they played. But this Michigan State offense this year is different. Mel Tucker has injected some life, some juice into that. And not only... You know, has he done that? He's also a guy with SEC ties. He's been a coach at Georgia. He's been at Alabama. He already has some of those connections and know kind of what it's like. So you're not, essentially, even though he's been, a, you know, head coach of Colorado, then went over to Michigan State, you're not exactly bringing an outsider in. You're not exactly bringing a guy who doesn't really know what he's in for in. So Mel Tucker has done more with less. He has SEC ties already, and he's mastered now the transfer portal and getting teams competitive, which, as we know, it's kind of hit or miss. It's an important part of the job now. It's a good way to reload. Alabama's receiving is doing it masterfully. Their best receiver this year, Jamison Williams, transferred from Ohio State. So now it's not only about trying to keep guys on your team, but it's also about how can you get better, not just the recruiting, through the transfer portal. Mel Tucker has done that tremendously in year two, Michigan State. And for Mark Stoops, he has truly now built a consistent winner at Kentucky. 2018, they were a New Year, or not New Year's Six, but they had a great season, beat Florida for the first time in ages. This year, they beat not only Florida, they beat LSU in back-to-back weeks. Both those wins with lesser <laughs> talent, right? Florida on paper is more talented than Kentucky. LSU on paper is more talented than Kentucky. And they blew out LSU. So when you look at how Mark Stoops has been able to recruit to Kentucky, still get good players there. Again, same thing as mastered the transfer portal, getting Will Levis from Penn State to become his quarterback and, and rode Kentucky to the number 11 ranking this year. He has done more with less, but when you look at the LSU job, now, LSU is in a state, Louisiana, that has one of the, you know, is more one of the talent-rich states in the country. You know, we have, obviously, Florida, you have Texas, you have California. LSU, uh, Louisiana, though, is a very talent-rich state. And what LSU has done, what has led to them being so dominant for so long, is that they have crushed, absolutely killed, the in-state recruiting. You can make the argument, LSU is the best program in-state, or has done the best job of keeping their talent home of any team in the country. There's so much talent just sitting there that they consistently get year in and year out. So now if you're Mark Stoops, already a solid recruiter, he can go into Louisiana and basically put a fence around the state, which is 
you know, LSU's done a great job of for the most part anyway. I think he would be a, a tremendous coach to come in there and bring sustained success to LSU. Bringing program builders in like Mel Tucker and Mark Stoops, are they sexy names? No. Right? They're not Jimbo Fisher. They're not James Franklin. They're not going to come in here, you know, kissing babies like Lane Kiffin was at Ole Miss and basically having the fans bow down to their feet. But for me, being the program building kind of coaches is what LSU needs. They want sustainable success at LSU. I mean, both of those coaches bring a pedigree of sustained success at their programs. Now you give them more talent than they ever had. I think that will only take this team, take their coaching level or co- their coaching skill to another level. So it's fun to kind of play the big fish, you know, go big game hunting, if you will. Having uh, athletic director Scott Woodward hire Jimbo Fisher when he was at AM, hire Chris Peterson when he's at Washington, he has been the guy to lure the big name to his respective school. I think this year, for LSU specifically, going with, I don't want to say tier two, because I think that's disrespectful, but not chasing after the big, sexy, shiny prize, right? Not going after James Franklin or Jimbo Fisher or even Lane Kiffin. You go with Mark Stoops, you go with Mel Tucker. I think both of those choices would be super smart and super successful if they're able to get them to LSU, because you would bring the ability to have sustained success. Not a one-hit wonder we go 15-0 and then have a program drop off. You can go... 11 and 1, 10 and 2 every single year and be in the national title picture every single year. That's what LSU wants. That's what I think both Mel Tucker and Mark Shoops bring to the table. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Who should LSU target, uh, target next? Which name? If you're an LSU fan, if you're just a college football fan, should LSU kind of have written down that they should have circled to target next year to be the next head coach of the Tigers? Facebook Worldwide Sports Ray Network, Twitter. WWSRN underscore radio, WWSRN underscore radio at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. We'll get your thoughts there. When we do come back, a few other college football thoughts, including Iowa lost a shocker, we'll say, to Purdue. But there really shouldn't be a lot of surprise with the Hawkeyes falling to the Boilermakers. I'll explain that on a few other college football whip around notes when the Ryan Hickey Show does return on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back in to the Ryan Hickey Show with you. Where else? On the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. A lot to get into. We're chatting about Ed Orgeron and LSU. Who the next head coach should be of the Tigers? For me, the, the answer is, is twofold. I think I have two names I think it would be perfect for the Tigers next year. Mark Stoops of Kentucky, Mel Tucker of Michigan State. To me, both of those guys have proved they can win with less. They are program builders that are out there to, to achieve sustainable success, not be a one-hit wonder. LSU fans crave sustainable success. They want to be in the national title picture every single year, which, look, I mean, a lot of cultural programs do, right? Don't get me wrong. As a Penn State fan, I'd love if my team every single year was in the national title hunt. But LSU has the talent consistently on a yearly basis to do so. So I think both of those guys, Mark Stoops and Mel Tucker, would be able to bring sustainable success. Their philosophies there, I think, would make LSU a perennial title contender Every single year. So I'm curious your thoughts, whether it's Facebook, Worldwide Sports, or Network, Twitter, 
WWSR Ryan underscore radio at Ryan Hickey show on Twitter as well. Get your thoughts in there. Who should be the next head coach of LSU? But that's not the only thing going on in college football. It was a wacky week number seven. As always, right? Anytime you go into the weekend saying, oh, the slate's not that great. There's really not that many marquee games there. Always craziness, chaos happens. And we saw that with the number two team in the country, the Iowa Hawkeyes, they go down to Purdue. Let me say this. Again, full disclosure, I'm a Penn State fan. Obviously, Penn State lost to Iowa last week. I feel like I am keeping this objective when I say that this loss shouldn't be that surprising. But like, like I can't, I can't sit here and tell you that I picked Purdue to win. I can't sit here and tell you that, like you know, I I would be that I didn't predict uh, predict I would go twelve and zero. I did. I thought they would win out the rest of the season and they'd be twelve and zero facing Penn State or, or Ohio State in the Big Ten title game. But you watch how this game unfolded. You watch how the Penn State Iowa game unfolded last Saturday. This loss shouldn't be surprising because, frankly, Iowa is really not as good as we are, are making them out to be. This defense is elite, elite at causing turnovers. The issue, though, is that when they're not causing turnovers, when they're not getting three or four interceptions, when they're not forcing a fumble or two, this defense is overrated. They really can't get the stops necessary to shut down opposing offenses. And offensively, now that this is a hot take, everyone kind of knows this, they're atrocious offensively. The word explosiveness, whatever the antithesis of that, slow as molasses, I, I, off the top of my head, I, I'm not exactly the a, a wordsmith here. So whatever the uh, opposite of uh, explosive is, that's what Iowa's offense is. It is bad. It is putrid. It is slow moving. It is plotting. It is tough to watch. And this is why... When I tweeted this out on Saturday night after the game, I will admit some emotions were, you know, were a part of this, but I tweeted Iowa, despite winning and beating Penn State last week, should drop in the rankings, not move up, because they didn't really play that well. They needed a backup quarterback to win the game, and they barely were able to squeak it out when a backup quarterback played for Penn State for two and a half quarters. At home, mind you. And it took one week for them to truly get exposed. Because defensively, again, what did I tell you? When they're not forcing turnovers, this defense is not very good. They're overrated. Sean Clifford, in the quarter and a half he played for Penn State last week, Penn State scored 17 points. Clifford himself threw for almost 150 yards in just a quarter and a half. Now, he had two picks. That's on him. But also, when they weren't getting interceptions, they were not getting stops. 150 yards, 17 points, a quarter and a half. They were, I mean, Purdue shredded Iowa. Yeah, uh, on Saturday. That was, again, a defense that couldn't get stops. You had the quarterback for Purdue, Aiden O'Connell, threw for 375 yards and two touchdowns. David Bell, maybe arguably the most underrated receiver in all of college football. He's going to be a first-round pick. He is really damn good. Had a few injuries early this year. Obviously, Purdue is not exactly on the national radar. But David Bell, 11 receptions on Saturday for 240 yards. 240 yards. Iowa was not getting the stop anywhere. There's no corner that was locking down David Bell. Because guess what? Purdue kept going to him, and there was no answer. And this vaunted Iowa defense that's elite at getting turnovers did force one turnover. But again, it got to almost a point where the turnover was almost indicative of how just truly overrated Iowa's offense is. Because the turnover was a fumble where you had the Purdue receiver lunging for the end zone, reaching the ball out. Ball comes out, fumbles. 
through the end zone to touchback Iowa ball. But you have the Purdue receiver. If he holds on to it, goes out of bounds. The ball's on the one-yard line. Purdue's about to score another touchdown to pull even further away. So the one touchdown they got came at their own one-yard line when Purdue fumbled out of the back of the end zone. So defensively, again, when they're not getting turnovers, this is not a very good unit. Or I should say an overrated unit, because they, they have stats to back it up. That's unfair. But when it comes to facing the good offenses and slowing them down, they were unable to do so. Purdue went up and down the field easily. Penn State, when they're healthy, up and down the field easily. When they face, if they make the Big Ten title game, whether it's Penn State again, whether it's Ohio State, whether it's Michigan, I have no reason to believe that they won't have, you know, issues offensively. They will. The other team, that is. I think they'll be able to march up and down the field and score at will. This defense is not great when it comes to not making turnovers. And offensively, when the defense isn't giving them short fields to work with, when the defense isn't putting them in plus territory, this offense can't string drives together. They can't put three first downs together. Spencer Peters is not a very good quarterback. The running game, it should be there, is really non-existent. You know, Tyler Goodson is a very good running back. They haven't really been able to establish him consistently. The passing game is based off the run game. It's a play-action passing game that, again, when the run game's not having success, when you're down and you need to come back, Spencer Peters is not the quarterback you want to be there. There is zero explosiveness on this Iowa offense. There is no playmaking at all on this Iowa offense. And rightly for me, they dropped to number 11. I thought they should have dropped last week. They got lucky. And this week, at home, one week later, they got what was coming to them. They got exposed. They played the true Iowa football that I think we all saw last week, but Penn State was unable to capitalize, unable to capitalize on, and Purdue absolutely capitalized. So good for the AP. I know that the AP poll doesn't matter. And you know what? Iowa, their playoff hopes, I think, are still alive. You still have a Penn State win, which, again, still to me is an asterisk on it because injuries, but whatever. Injuries happen. Part of the game. Iowa runs the table, and they somehow beat Penn State again or beat Iowa, uh, beat Ohio State. Their playoff hopes are still alive, but took a big, big hit because the way they played the last two weeks, even though they're one and one with a top three or top five win at home, they've really not played good football. No one really took them seriously as a top four, uh, as a top two team, I should say, last week. And again, now they have fallen the rankings. I think this is truly the Iowa team that we expected. Overrated. Not overrated in my mind. Caleb Williams, man. What an outburst. What a debut. For someone making his first career start. True freshman, as you know, comes in off the bench last week against Texas. Gives that team a spark. An incredible comeback over Texas. There was debate all week. Because Lincoln Riley refused to name a starting quarterback. Even cut off media availability. The rest of the year because they didn't want to talk about it. Or the rest of the week, I should say, because they didn't want to talk about it. But the expected result was there. The decision we all thought Lincoln Riley would make. The easy decision for Lincoln Riley to make, he did. He started Caleb Williams. And this offense, I'm telling you, I know it's only a game and a half, right? The second half of the Texas game and now the full game against TCU. But this offense looks so much better. So much explosive. So much more explosive. This to me looks like the Oklahoma offense we were expecting to see under uh, under Spencer Rattler. But he was unable to do. And now Caleb Williams has come in there and really delivered. I don't know if it's the dual threat ability where Caleb Williams is so dangerous with his legs and now that just gives the defense an extra... Um, extra person, an extra element to the offense to worry about. I don't know if it's just purely his confidence for a true freshman to come in there. He has really injected life in this entire team, not just the offense, but also the defense. 
I don't know if it's just his confidence. I don't know if it's just if it's dual threat ability, but whatever it is, this offense is night and day better. Night and day. With Caleb Williams under center compared to Spencer Rattler. And now to me, this is the Oklahoma team that I thought was going to be the playoff contender. This looks like the Oklahoma offense, at least, that I truly thought would win the national title. He's an efficient uh, on Saturday against TCU, an efficient 18 for 23, 295 yards, four touchdowns, no turnovers for Caleb Williams. Ran for another 66 yards on the ground, touchdown there. Kennedy Brooks, again, all of a sudden, the run game that struggled the first five games of the year, all of a sudden, the offensive line that was beleaguered, that wasn't really protecting Spencer Rattler through the first five games of the season, is now opening up holes. All of a sudden, Oklahoma's run game, the second half of the Texas game, and now the entirety of the TCU game, is coming back to life. Kennedy Brooks, 153 yards. He also had a touchdown on the ground as well. The run game is there. And as you know, and what's kind of been said from Joel Klatt to Kirk Herbstreit to other smart college football minds, is that Oklahoma... For all the hype of, you know, the quarterback with Baker Mayfield and Kyla Murray and Jalen Hurts and Spencer Rattler and now Caleb Williams, Oklahoma's offense, and they're humming, starts with the run game. And guess what? The last game and a half or so, Oklahoma has gotten back to the run game. It's been way more efficient. And it's not an accident that when Caleb Williams has been under center calling the shots, all of a sudden now the run game has become that much more dangerous, that much more profitable, uh, prosperous, and working. So now that it was a tough decision for Lincoln Riley to make, because to me, it was kind of a no-brainer with how the offenses looked under Spencer Rattler compared to how the offense looked under Caleb Williams. He made the right decision, go, uh, though, in going with Caleb Williams as QB1. This offense looked like a college football playoff contending offense for the first time all year. I'm so excited to see what Oklahoma does the rest of the year. This has been a team I've been defending. I've been on the entire year. They absolutely paid off that faith with a huge win, an impressive win over TCU and Caleb Williams's starting debut. And finally, here we'll end on a negative note. Late in the night, Ole Miss and Tennessee. Lane Kiffin makes his much-anticipated debut to Tennessee, to Neyland Stadium, for the first time since leaving Tennessee in 09 to go to USC. That one year there, boom, bolted to go to Hollywood. And honestly, to me, Tennessee, with the way their fans acted the last minute of the game, they truly embarrassed themselves. They absolutely embarrass themselves yet again. And honestly, it really shouldn't be that surprising. It really should not be that surprising that a fan base who has been petulant, who has, to me, felt self-righteous and given themselves too much credit, yet again becomes a star of a game and embarrasses themselves on a national level. In case you missed it, an interesting call, third, or really it was fourth in like 24 Tennessee gets close late in the game. They're down by five to almost 31-26. They get right at the marker. For me, the referees called him short. They looked at a review. They, the call on the field remained. I thought he was short. Where the ball was looked to be just a half yard, a, a foot short of the line. To me, the, the officials made the right call. It was close. It was not egregious. It wasn't one of those where he was like five yards over the line and they called him short and there's no real reason for it. To me, he, they ruled him short. I thought he was short. Tennessee fans, though, did not think so, and they let everyone know about it, throwing debris on the field. There's a 20-minute delay in the game with just a minute left because Tennessee fans were showering the field with all sorts of debris and letting their frustrations know that they thought the referee got the call wrong. And look, again, this really shouldn't be that surprising that Tennessee fans, of all people, are the ones showering the field, causing a 20-minute delay, and embarrassing themselves because that's who they are. 
They have shown their true colors now a few different times. This is who Tennessee is. And frankly, this is my frustration with the Vols. And I'll be honest, I kind of root against them. Their fans are absolutely delusional. Tennessee fans might be. And this is, this is a, a bold proclamation I'm going to make here. I'll be honest. Because college football, there's a ton of different fan bases. Almost every single fan base in their own way can, make, uh, can have this title. Tennessee fans are the most delusional fans in college football. They think they are at the top. They think they are in the penthouse. Frankly, in college football right now, they're in the outhouse. They're in a program that's irrelevant. This is a program that is so far from the glory days that they had in the late 90s with Jason Witten. Well, not that he was late 90s, but with Jason Witten, with Peyton Manning. This team is so far from that. But they think they're right there and they're not. And acting like the way they did on Saturday night to me just kind of shows you truly how far and how dis, um, delusional the Vols fans are. Because let's not forget, this is not the, the first time they've injected themselves into the action. They've injected themselves into the football program. They completely, a few years ago, took over that head coaching search after, um, after uh, Butch Jones was fired. They were going to hire Greg Schiano. And guess what? Tennessee fans said, oh, we don't like Greg Schiano. We're better than Greg Schiano. So let's dig up. Let's, let's try to, to draw some comparisons to Greg Schiano's past when he was at Penn State and time to Jerry Sandusky so we can hire him. They completely took over the head coaching search. They sort of got their AD John Curry fired. Philip Former came in there. Try to save the day, and guess what? They hired Jeremy Pruitt. Congratulations, Vol fans. You got what you wanted. To me, you had a good head coach in Greg Shannon that's been a program builder that has built Rutgers up to a respectable team that's been competitive instead of being a doormat that they were for basically almost their entire existence. You could have got a guy that exactly what you needed. Tennessee needs a program builder. Tennessee is not a team, is not a program right now that's flashy, that can go big game hunting. They're not going to lure Jimbo Fisher or James Franklin or Matt Campbell, they're not on the same level as LSU and USC when they do their head coaching search this offseason. You need to build yourself up. You're currently in the outhouse. you got to get yourself to even just the middle floors first before you can even think of trying to get over that next hub and go national title hunting and try to get a big name in there to get Tennessee truly back into the elites of college football. But their fans didn't want Greg Shannon, thought they were better than Greg Shannon, said, no, no, no thanks. Jerry Pruitt, as we know, did not last long. And guess what? All of a sudden, like we talked about before with Coach L, the wins aren't there. All of a sudden, all these off-the-field issues become a big issue. All of a sudden, now they're important with recruiting violations that were self-reported by Tennessee. All of a sudden, Jerry Pruitt is fired and fired for cause. It's truly, truly comical to watch Tennessee fans and how they act and how they view the program compared to where the program truly is. And again, that was the latest display was Saturday night. I get there's a lot of tensions. I get you don't like Lane Kiffin, and to be fair, I would be the I would act the same way, or I'd be I would not act the same way. I would be frustrated when Lane Kiffin came back to town for the first time. I'd boo. I'd be upset. I wouldn't welcome him with a hero's welcome. I get why there's still scorned and hurt feelings there, but to act the way you did, throwing stuff on the field, throwing bottles. Throwing a mustard bottle, which I don't know how you even, or why would you even bring that into the game, but it's on the field. You're throwing golf balls. Lane Kiffin got hit with a freaking golf ball on the sideline. Like, what are we doing? How do you even bring in a golf ball? Why would you bring in a golf ball? And you have fans throwing them at Lane Kiffin. You have Ole Miss cheerleaders getting pelted with things. They're going to the sideline. The band, the Tennessee band is leaving the field. It's embarrassing. They're petulant. 
But to me, they got what they got. They got what they deserved in no loss. Tennessee fans yet again embarrass themselves. I get that, you know, the, the, the emotions are high. You want to boo Lane Kiffin? You have, no, you have every right to. You want to scream some expletives? Go for it. Flip him the double bird? No problem. But there's no, no, no excuse for the way that they showered the field with just debris and caused a delay. It's embarrassing. Absolutely embarrassing. Hopefully they wake up sooner rather than later and realize where their program is. And part of the reason why their program has never gotten back to the levels they want to is because of their own delusional state of mind. We'll come back here on the Ryan Hickey Show. We'll finish up with the Monday night game, Bills and Titans. Man, Titans, can they really get themselves a big win and launch themselves into maybe the top or into the Super Bowl conversation? We'll discuss that when the Ryan Hickey Show returns right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back in to the Ryan Hickey Show. We're us on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Make sure you're liking us on Twitter or following us on Twitter, WWSR Run underscore radio. I'm also on Twitter at Ryan Hickey Show. Liking us on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Following us on YouTube, also Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And our tremendous app, WWSRN for an iPhone, Worldwide Sports Radio Network for Android. All the tremendous content produced on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network, Monday through Sunday, morning, afternoon, nights, can all be found on those locations. But specifically in one place with the app. So tonight, Monday Night Football concludes week number six in the NFL. Bills traveling to Tennessee to take on the Titans. The, ten- the, the Titans desperately, I think desperately need a win tonight. The Bills have been playing some great football coming off that big win over the Chiefs on Sunday Night Football. I don't think there's really a ton of takeaway from the Bills either way. Even if the Titans win, right? If you remember last year too, the Titans with their COVID scare, Played the uh, the Bills on like a Tuesday night. It was a very random night after they weren't able to practice for it was almost 10 days. And they beat the brakes off of Buffalo. A very surprising outcome last year. But even if Buffalo loses again this year and Tennessee wins, I don't think there's a lot of panic going to come out of Buffalo or with the Bills. They have an impressive start this year. They have nice wins over teams like the Chiefs, like I just mentioned. And... There's still a lot of goodwill and equity built up with the Bills to where one loss on Monday night won't chase people away. On the flip side, though, the Titans, I think, do raise some questions. They're 3-2 right now, and I think the Colts are starting to make some noise. Now, the Colts are 2-4. There's still a long way to go here. They had that brutal loss to the Ravens on Monday Night Football last year. They really could have made this interesting. really could have pulled them into a tie for first place if the Titans were to lose this game. But I think the Titans' stranglehold in this division is nowhere where we thought it would be. The Colts now are starting to get healthier. Carson Wentz, I just saw a stat from Field Yates, which is impressive. Carson Wentz has the fewest interceptions for any quarterback that has played every single game for his team this year. He just has one interception, which again, a lot of question marks about the fit with Carson Wentz and Frank Reich and Indy coming off of the worst year of his career in 2020 with the Eagles. I think Carson Wentz is showing you that, yeah, you know what? That talent, that MVP year talent, that even not MVP year, but 2019 when he got to the playoffs, 2018 when he was healthy, that Carson Wentz is still there. 
I think he's quickly showing you that it was the coaching, it was the roster that was the bigger issue in Philly last year than it was Carson Wentz's play. Sure, his confidence took a hit. I'm sure the drafting Jalen Hurts had to do with that. But right now, the Colts have put him in a situation where he is flourishing early. And there's still a lot of questions. I'm not trying to get too carried away here. But with health, with with COVID being unvaccinated, there's still a lot of question marks about Carson Wentz. Can he continue to play well? But he has played really well so far through six games. Colts are 2-4, and four, but he is nowhere near the reason for that 2-4 and four record. He's played through hurt ankles. He has offensively given them a chance to win, whether it's field goal kicks that have been missed, whether it's the defense not getting stops. There have been plenty of issues. The running game not getting going. Plenty of issues for the Colts' struggles this year outside of Carson Wentz. For the Titans, though, we know their identity. Now, they've been you know also ravaged by injury. A.J. Brown has been in and out of the lineup. Julio Jones has been injured and missed some time. Um, so they've also been hurt in the passing game because some of their best receivers and playmakers haven't been in there. Taylor Wan's been in, in and out of the lineup with injuries as well. So they've been hurt by injuries. But also, I think there's still, there still should be skepticism with the Titans where, where I think this is a good benchmark game for them because their defense is not very good. Passing, you know, the secondary is not very good. They're not still actively getting after the quarterback. They can't really get a pass rush. All three levels really raise concern for the Titans when it comes to Mike Vrabel, who's a defensive-minded coach, mind you. So for the Titans, if they want to kind of get in that truly upper echelon of teams in the AFC to join the Chargers and the Ravens and the Bills, they got to win a game like this. They are not there right now. They might not even be, they're not even with, the, to be honest, the Chiefs or the Browns. Like if we're looking at uh, tiers in the AFC, I think tier one, you right now off the top of my head, you, I would still put the Chargers, I'd put the Ravens, and i put the Bills in there. You want to put tier two, I would put the Browns and, and the Chiefs. Uh, and tier three, I put the, the Titans. Like, I don't think they're even right now on the same level as the Chiefs or the Browns. This is a game, though, where they can win the truly kind of start to raise their profile in the AFC and start to really kind of show that they're a legit team. I have my own doubt. So this is the same Titans team that, look, struggled uh, at different points this year, barely beat, um, or I should say lost to the Jets. I get there's injuries there, but you still should not be losing a game to the Jets no matter what, even when you have Derrick Henry healthy and running the way he is. Ryan Tannehill, I still have questions about can he truly – Elevated team. This is going to be a fantastic test to me for the Titans tonight. I'm picking the Bills, though. Titans are at home. I think they're the more desperate team to win this, and they're the more desperate team, especially on a national stage, to truly try to make a statement that, hey, all the talk about the Chargers and the Bills and the Ravens, don't forget about us here in Tennessee. Titans definitely need this game more than the Bills. With that said, I think Buffalo is a better team. They're playing better football right now. They get the job done. They absolutely do get the job done. So I'm going to go Bills tonight. We'll say 31-17. Handily. I think that's, that, that's my prediction for the score here. That's how I think it, it will go down. So that'll do it for this edition of the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Network. I appreciate all you tuned in who made us a part of your Monday morning. Always love being one of the first shows on the air to kind of recap a wild and crazy NFL and college football weekend. But we can't do it without you. So thank you, the listener for joining us and being a part of the show. As always, you can contribute to the show on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network, on Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. We will be back on Thursday morning. Get you ready for week number seven of the NFL, week number eight in college football. So until then, stay safe. And now as the weather starts to turn, stay warm as the autumn weather really, football weather really does, and sweater weather really does appear here in most of the country. So stay sane, stay safe, stay warm. And of course, we'll talk to you on Thursday. Where else? But the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.
It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio Network.